This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And if this is the second episode of the show you've ever listened to, because the first one was me talking to Adam Mosseri from Instagram last week. Welcome. We're glad to have you aboard. If you're coming back for the first time in a while because you heard that interview and you wanted to hear more, welcome back. If you've been listening all along, bless you. Been doing the show for a long time. There's plenty of episodes you can go listen to at your leisure, as the British say, if they have an affected accent. This is a very good episode. It's an interview with Max Chafkin, who's a writer at Bloomberg Businessweek, who has written a great new book about Peter Thiel, who for years I thought of as kind of a Silicon Valley archetype, weird, nerdy, and outcast, and intellectual, and kind of deliberately... Uh, provocative, um, but nothing super unusual in that world, um, who over the last few years sort of morphed into a sort of villainous archetype. He uh, he became the most prominent backer of Donald Trump during his 2016 election campaign. Uh, there was a brief period where, where Teal was really influential within the Trump circle. It wasn't very long, but still very important. Access to the White House and, and was helping, in theory, to figure out who was going to staff the federal government. He also bankrupted Gawker, um, pursuing a years-long personal vendetta against that site and its owner. And Max believes that we're going to be hearing from Peter Thiel and about Peter Thiel for a long time because he's a billionaire with with big ideas, uh, many of which I don't like, uh, but has the money to sort of push them through. Um, so we have a long conversation about that in his book. It's very good. And we also talked briefly with Joe Posner, my colleague from Vox Media. Uh, I referred to him multiple times as our, our, our mad genius uh, video. Um, he really is smart. He's put together a show that is now running on HBO, featuring some of my colleagues like Ronnie Mola. So we talked to him about that as well. Okay, enough of me talking. Here is me talking to Max Chafkin. I'm here with Max Chafkin, who has a day job working for Bloomberg covering technology, and he's written an excellent book called The Contrarian, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. Welcome, Max. Thanks for having me. I have a vague idea. I had a vague idea who Peter Thiel was, decent idea who Peter Thiel was before I read your book, and, and, and even before he became America's favorite supervillain a few years ago. But for the uninitiated, for people who have, a vague, who have an even vaguer idea of who he is, who is Peter Thiel and why does he matter? Why does he merit a book? Right. So uh, Peter Thiel is, I, I would argue, the most influential venture capitalist in Silicon Valley over the last couple of decades. Um, if you go back, like I said, over the last 20 years, uh, you can go down the list of tech companies that he has either, you know, made a key early investment in or played some role or had a friend who made an who played an important role. So Facebook, uh, he was the first investor. He co-founded uh, PayPal founded Palantir, uh, founded a, a venture capital firm, Founders Fund. So he's, he's kind of everywhere in the tech world. And and the thing to me that m made him really interesting, I think, you know, pr is probably a big reason I wrote the book, is that in 2016, Teal, this kind of, you know, he he had a conservative political profile, but, but, but it wasn't widely known. Um, in the same month, in May, 
sort of gets himself put on the delegate list for Donald Trump at the Republican National Convention where he gives a speech. And the same month um, exposes himself and is exposed as the secret financer of the Gawker litigation. So he suddenly, uh, as you say, kind of emerges in this kind of, you know, power player role after, you know, playing a mostly behind the scenes role in Silicon Valley. Although, as you say, you know, tech people know who he is. But that to me was really interesting. And, you know, both because there's some inherent conflict there, being a a technology industry person, a futurist, and backing, you know, essentially a reactionary uh, in Donald Trump. And also there's an interesting story of Silicon Valley itself going from, you know, kind of being this economic, cultural, political sideshow to engaging, you know, at the highest levels. So he, he, you you ran off his bona fides, uh, bona fides? How do we say it? I think it's bona fides. If I can't (laughs) pronounce it, I shouldn't say it. I don't know when I'm going to learn that. There are other successful venture capitalists, and he's sort of appears with some of them, right? Mark right. Andreessen and Bill Gurley, high-profile people. Is it because he was this rare Silicon Valley creature backing Donald Trump and also destroying uh, a major publisher beloved by lots of media types that, that, that catapults him from sort of interesting investor to guy that's worth spending hundreds of pages on? I mean, probably to some extent, though, I will say, I think even compared to Andreessen or Bill Gurley, uh, you make a pretty strong case that Teal is sort of more important. I mean, maybe not richer, maybe not a better investor, but but more important. And the reason I say that is because he's had a cultural impact that I think, although you could make the argument for Andreessen for sure, Teal wrote this book, Zero to One. It, it was a huge bestseller. He has, you know, legions of followers. I mean, he really is kind of at the center of a cultural movement. And I don't think that's something you can really say about any of these guys, including, you know, the most powerful people in Silicon Valley. Like, I don't, I don't know exactly what Jeff Bezos stands for, um, but I know sort of um, the, <laughs> that there is a large set of contradictory and, and interesting ideas that that Peter Thiel is all about. And, and Peter Thiel has this really coherent group of followers. It even has a name, of course, you know, the PayPal Mafia, which is this uh, a reference to this 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 crew of people who started at PayPal and who have um, gone all over Silicon Valley and are are, are huge influential force uh, today. Prior to his ascent and sort of national consciousness, my understanding of him was he he kind of seemed of a type of of a valley person, which is smart, weird, libertarian leaning but maybe not doctrinaire and was the kind of person who'd been successful early and on in his life. And so it was and, – and, and sort of Aspergery and that combination made it sort of – made him sort of – did I just say doctrinaire already? Made him just sort of ideologically rigid and, 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 and very attractive to lots of people, right, who either wanted to tell other people to fuck off and or be wildly rich. Is he of a piece of a group of people in the Valley or is there something truly unique about him? So, I mean, there's kind of a conventional wisdom that you heard bandied about a lot in 2016 when he got up on the stage of the Republican convention in Florida, which was that, okay, he's basically unlike everybody in Silicon Valley. He's the the only conservative. Um, And that's sort of based on the what I think is basically a stereotype about, you know, California or something. You know, you think obviously California has a lot of Democrats in it. And uh, most tech workers, uh, you know, sort of like regular normal, uh, you know, clock in or whatever badge in tech workers are, um, I'd say, pretty liberal. Um, But of course, 
there's been a, a kind of competing movement in Silicon Valley for a really long time. And the book gets into that. I mean, you know, there's always been a really, really strong streak of libertarianism, uh, you know, going back to the earliest days. There's also been kind of a streak of, I don't, I don't know if this is quite the right word, but statism. I mean, uh, Silicon Valley is, uh, of course, you know, basically an outgrowth of the military industrial complex. And, and as a result, like those cultural threads um, pull through. And I think Teal has been really smart and successful at kind of amplifying those. You know, I will say also, a lot of people think the PayPal mafia, which is, again, this, this group of um, venture capitalists and entrepreneurs, they think of it as a, as a technology group. You know, these guys invest in companies. But really, the PayPal mafia grew up at this conservative um, newspaper that Peter Thiel started in the mid, in the late 80s called the Stanford Review. Many of the, the key early figures at PayPal were former Stanford Review guys. They came out of this tradition of activist right-wing politics, and that's Thiel's tradition. So he is definitely, you know, swimming in a stream. I think what he's been really successful at is sort of taking that strain of activist conservative politics, this kind of trolling the libs. Uh, that's an anachronism, of course. But, you know, that's kind of what they were doing back then, um, you know, trying to get the goat of the the liberal establishment. And he sort of managed to graft that onto a, a business thing, somehow marry that with, you know, what we think of as technology disruption. So I assume you have sold the, the film rights to this thing. Uh, no, no. They're, they're, really? They're still available. Okay, because someone <laughs> should get on it because you do a great job in the beginning setting up this arc for him where he is the product of this weird upbringing, German immigrant parents, and then dad goes to work in mines in South Africa. And and you describe him as sort of, to say the quintessential nerd's wrong, but like this character that is almost built to be bullied. Yeah. And then you can sort of see him responding to that literally the rest of his life so far. Yeah. Um, am, I, am, I, am I summing that up uh, correctly? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think— he was um, and is, of course, very intelligent and introverted. And that, you know, that just as a starting point is is generally a magnet for, uh, you know, kind of bullying. And his family moved around a lot. And they, they were, as he's talked about and, and as I get into in the book, they, they were outsiders. I mean, they were um, German immigrants. They bounced from Cleveland to South Africa and, and you know, lived for a time in Namibia. At the time, it was called Southwest Africa. And um, and then come back to Silicon Valley. And and as you say, he, he was kind of, um, he had a tough time as a young man and at college. And that sort of, he sort of managed to harness that and, and take that, what I think was anger and turn it into this sort of first this kind of activist um, political project, which is really his first entrepreneurial venture. And then it's kind of the same energy that I think helps propel PayPal in the early years and has propelled his his career, you know, ever since. To be armchair psychologist, is there an alternate reality where he gets a, a, a boyfriend because he's, he's, he's gay, is gay? Um, or just more nurturing parents or a friend or a buddy and and just feels a little bit less apart and there's just an alternate reality? I mean, maybe, but one thing I tried to resist, I really did try to resist and I'm trying now even to resist kind of armchair psychologizing because I, I feel totally unqualified to do it. Um, but and but I would, what I will say is, I think that yes, the anger, the bullying, there, there are lots of ways to sort of psychologize um, somebody like this. He was also really, really ambitious. And if you're really ambitious, if you want to be successful, the things he was doing were really smart things to do if you want to be successful. So, you know, there's this moment at Stanford 
where one of Teal's close friends, Keith Raboy, hurled a bunch of homophobic slurs at a Stanford faculty member. Teal defends him. And Raboy and Teal are both gay, of course. So it's kind of tempting to, like, psychologize that somehow and say, oh, well, they were self-hating, which maybe. Um, but maybe they were also ambitious. Uh, you know, in the late 80s, the best, a great way to kind of get ahead to say get an internship in the Reagan White House was to, you know, do exactly this kind of trollist provocation. And that's exactly what happened for Teal. You know, he got a, an internship at the uh, Department of Education under Bill Bennett and, and you know, kind of was off to the yeah. races. So, and, and to fast forward all the way to Trump, like his betting on Trump is a bet. It's a, it's saying, you know, if I lose, if, I, if if Trump loses as he's supposed to lose, I've lost a million bucks. Who cares? Right. If he wins, in theory, there's a big payoff for me. He's not. He doesn't like Trump. He's a Carly Fiorina guy at one point, and probably more of a Ted Cruz guy. But places the bet on Trump because that's that's the the odds are good. Well, I think it's. I think he did like Trump. I mean, and I, I think he does kind of like Trump, although. There's a, like on a personal level, maybe not. I, I don't know. I think it's I think it's pretty complicated. I, uh, one thing about Trump, uh, so so it's true. You you could tell like a really convincing story about how Peter Thiel and Donald Trump are just like the opposite. I mean, you know, Trump is this, uh, you know, like I said, reactionary. He's from New York. He's from the real estate industry. That's like not that smart. Yeah, or you know, he's but he said he's always telling people he's really smart. But he's basically the opposite of, of Thiel, who's this introverted, you know, genius type who's from an industry that despises real estate, despises the kind of or or, or claims to despise anyway the kind of like gossip mongering rise that has propelled Trump. You know, on the other hand. Trump's kind of like the core of his campaign promise was, you know, I am going to say the things that people are afraid to say. I'm going to say things that are kind of borderline racist, sexist, anti-immigrant, whatever, because, you know, polit the politically correct, you know, police. And, and, and like, I think that when you really get down to it, like that was a big part of Trump's appeal to like core voters. And I think it was a huge appeal for Peter Thiel, who's, who's really like, if he, if you asked him to like rank the, the biggest problems in the world, yeah. he would rank quote unquote political correctness, you know, in the top, I don't know, probably like the top three or something. Uh, maybe, maybe even number one. And you do bounce around. I mean, if you, I keep bouncing around in time here, but if you, you know, Y Combinator has an offshoot of some, uh, of, uh, a message board called Hacker News. And if you want to get a good sense for sort of the strains that, that Peter Thiel created and came out of it, a lot of it can, you can see right there. And, it, and you get the sense that the, a lot of people who are commenting there just are, enjoy intellectually provoking someone or asking questions, as we say. Right. Um, and they may not be horrible people. They just they just don't know why you can't ask a question or posit something that everyone else finds upsetting. Right. Absolutely. And and it's and there's kind of it's seen as valuable even like the the act of of saying that slightly controversial thing or, or, or often or just of, asking the question. Why yeah. can't if you can't ask the question, then you can't shift right. a paradigm. You can't think outside the box. Um, I'm not I don't want to go over the entire book. So I'm going to skip the entire PayPal story. But it's great. And, great. and most of the people, um, many people um, in technology today came out of there, as you mentioned. Um, I want to skip ahead to Facebook and that investment. So at some point, uh, Teal has done well enough that he has five hundred thousand dollars to invest in Facebook. Is that a random sort of bet on his part, or did he have real deep insight into Mark Zuckerberg, or could that have been any other entrepreneur and it doesn't become Facebook and he does not become fabulously rich? I think it's probably halfway between those two polls. I mean, he was making other little investments at the time. 
But, uh, you know, I think there's an investment in LinkedIn. I think an investment in Friendster. So, you know, he was obviously thinking about social networks and interested about social networks. And, you know, this is where you start to see the, the impact of the PayPal mafia. Reed Hoffman, who was a senior executive at PayPal, starts this company, starts a couple of social networks. And I think that's, I mean, that's how Teal finds his way to this world. But you, you got to give him credit because, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg in 2005 doesn't look all that impressive. I mean, yes, like uh, Facebook is 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 growing, but like he's a, basically a, a guy who a sort of somewhat successful guy who got in trouble for doing a vaguely icky thing at Harvard University. And, I, you know, and, and of course, you could see why that would appeal to somebody mm-hmm. like Peter Thiel, because Peter Thiel loves, you know, messing with university administrators. It probably was like the number one attraction. And Zuckerberg, I think, has, uh, you know, some some things in common with Thiel. And I think one, I mean, one crucial thing that, uh, you know, pe- a lot of people already know this, but one thing that Thiel did in that Facebook investment, I think he, he originally loaned Zuckerberg the money, converted to equity after Facebook kind of restructured its company and restructured it in a way that gave Zuckerberg basically absolute control over the company, which he still has today. And so Thiel's been a you know really important influence in Facebook, but of course, you know, Zuckerberg's you know been running the show and and that's partly because Thiel set it up that way. Yeah, if you love the scene in the social network where Eduardo at the end, where Eduardo Severin confronts Mark Zuckerberg and, and Sean Parker slash Justin Timberlake, you've got an alternate version of that, the, the more accurate one. But it's very good. Um, so Teal makes hundreds of millions of dollars through that through that investment, but then could have made billions, but basically sold off all his stock around the time of the IPO. And he remains on the board of Facebook, but what is his connection to Facebook sort of beyond making money and beyond being the token conservative on the board? I mean, he played a huge—I think he played a huge role in sort of shaping Zuckerberg in terms of his approach to business, for sure. And and I would argue ideologically. Zuckerberg's talked about the the former, talked about Thiel's influence on him in terms of how he thinks about startups and stuff. I think you can kind of see it in Zuckerberg's— sort of philosophical approach to both business and to the extent that he's he's been political politics. You know, Zuckerberg gave a speech at Georgetown University two years ago, kind of arguing, basically trying to make the argument for why Facebook wasn't going to take these lies that Donald Trump was telling or Donald Trump's campaign was telling about Hunter Biden and Nancy Pelosi, why, why he wasn't going to take him down. And he made, you know, basically a libertarian argument, kind of a Peter Thiel um, style argument. And I think you, you see that influence showing up all over the place. Um, he does believe that, by the way. And by the way, there's a whole strain of the value. And this is, again, where Teal fits in, where it is Facebook's business model not to take down stuff, that, that t- not to take down horrible lies that Donald Trump tells or anybody else. Um, but that's also YouTube and Twitter. And they all and it's, it's their business model. It's legally crucial to their structure. But it is also what they believe. They right. believe ideologically that we should let everyone say what they want unless they're literally going to harm someone. Yep. Um, and not only is that like a better way to run a business, but it's better than the establishment. And here they mean you and me and everyone on the Acela corridor telling people how to behave either through media or through law. And that the better way to do this is to let it all get sorted out by people assisted with software. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's a super useful ideology. And, I, you know, I think to me, like one thing where, where Peter Thiel is like clearly a genius is like sort of combining ideology with business, finding ideological positions, connections, political movements that 
that have some resonance in, in, in the business world that, that benefit him and his friends, et cetera. Um, it's kind of very, I think, very similar to the Coke approach, actually, in terms of, um, you know, finding like ideological things that help the business, using the business to help the politics. And, and there's kind of a, quote, a virtuous or depending on your point of view, uh, anti-virtuous cycle. Um, there's a sort of second ideology that you kind of hinted at that I think is something that they all believe in too, which is this idea of growing really big, really fast, as fast as we possibly can and damn the consequences. And that, you know- Or deal with the consequences later. Yeah, yeah, deal with the consequences later or, or maybe, oh, who knows, might makes right or something. And and I think that, um, I think you see that, of course, in um, both in in kind of the behavior of Facebook and many of its peers, um, and also the way they talk about themselves. Like, it's you know, I don't think it's any coincidence that Zuckerberg's, you know, into like imperial Rome, you know, kind of this this sort of uh, militaristic metaphor for, for the company. Um, but of course, it shows up in, in Zero to One, which is Teal's book. I mean, Teal's book, which came out in 2014, grew out of a, a Stanford class that he taught in 2012. You know, it basically makes the argument that business success is monopoly profit. And that, and so, so that's basically, uh, you know, an ideology that says you need to get as big as you can. You need to dominate the network, basically do whatever you can to, to dominate the network and then, and then take profit. And that, and I think we're seeing that play out, as you said, like across the tech industry, not just at Facebook, but, but of course, Facebook's a good example of it. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Max Chafkin. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And we're back. In that book, Teal makes a point of saying a monopoly is Google and that throughout his career, he's had a real anti-Google bent to the point where he's funding Josh Hollies of the world with the because he wants them to reign in Google. I can see that ideologically, but I can't see that as and, – and also being a, a, a Facebook investor and board member. So what's the dichotomy that I'm missing? I mean, there? it is – I have to say the the Teal-Zuckerberg relationship I think is like one of the most interesting, um, you know, sort of mogul – relations questions, you know, that, that there is because you have this, um, as you said, he's he's the longest serving outside board member of Facebook. He's Mark Zuckerberg's mentor. He's made, a, you know, a, a huge amount of money, maybe not as much as he could have made from this company. And yet in all sorts of ways, he's doing things that are not super helpful to Facebook's success. And of course, having sold the stock when he did, you know, just after the IPO, perhaps that you know, frees him to be a little bit more honest about it. He is also pretty careful to sort of, he he does sort of criticize, you know, quote unquote, big tech. These politicians he funds do bring up Facebook all the time. Josh Hawley does, and so do uh, J.D. Vance, who's running for Senate in Ohio. So does Blake Masters in, um, in Arizona. Ted Cruz, another one. But they tend to go a little harder on Google. I mean, uh, Hawley actually sued Google. He didn't sue Facebook. J.D. Vance, 
just filed like an amicus brief in a in a in a case that's against Google, not Facebook. Teal called Google a you know a, a Chinese. Uh, I forget the. He basically accused them of, of spying for the Chinese. Mm-hmm. So there's a tendency to try to take both of them down a peg, but sort of focus the energy on Google, which. You know, maybe from Mark Zuckerberg's point of view, that's uh, you know that helps because it keeps the 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 uh, the you know the heat off of Facebook to some extent. I, I I don't know, but like I said, I think there is a huge inconsistency, and I I figure I feel like all the time Teal is almost daring Zuckerberg to to fire him. I mean, like there's an ad that JD Vance has been run, has you know has run his his pack, which Teal. Funded, it's it's a basically a teal paid for ad that you know rails against you know these basically evil elites and it is a face of Mark Zuckerberg f- flashing across the screen and and you know I don't know if I were Zuckerberg I, I don't know how good I'd feel about that. Again, I, I think the idea is well if we're going to be intellectually honest I can be a I can I can be a critic or I can fund someone who's a critic of you but that doesn't mean that I believe that or yeah. you can play it all all the different ways. So Teal puts him so it's a million dollars into Trump basically. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. We'll and he five. gets to speak. And prime time at the convention, um, so that alone is a giant victory for him. And then Trump wins, and there's a moment where it looks like Teal is going to be enormously influential in the Trump administration, and then he's not. It seems there's a point where he's he's proposing you know people from his network to run the FDA in order to destroy the FDA, et cetera. But it doesn't seem like anything ever comes out of that. So what what did Teal – well, first of all, why wasn't Teal more successful influencing the Trump administration? And what, if anything, did he get out of it? Right. Well, just one – we just want to back up one second and say he did the speech at the RNC before he donated. And the donation actually came about a week after the leak of the Access Hollywood tape. I so think, he got to speak – so I'm sorry that I missed the chronology. So he got to speak at the RNC simply by being the only person in Silicon Valley uh, willing to support Trump. Exactly. And by being – the only, not just the only person in Silicon Valley, but really like the only kind of, you know, normie businessman. I mean, as Teal's not really a normie businessman, but but compared to like the rest of the someone who Trump wasn't team, a failed sitcom star yeah. or a real estate guy, and also, and you know, to to give full credit where it's due, Teal's speech at the RNC I think was important. I mean, he he got up and said, you know, I'm proud to be gay, and that was the first time that it happened at a Republican convention. It got a big round of applause. I think it it helped you know, probably helped broaden the the tent for Trump a little bit. As out there as Teal is, I, you know, I think it I, the way the optics were, were not out there, it was a, a moment, I think, of kind of inclusivity, and it was powerful. Anyway, he, he get, makes this donation, and that kind of helps change the news cycle for Trump. I mean, WikiLeaks, I would say, did more mm-hmm. of that. Um, but but doesn't hurt to see, you know, a big, serious guy come in with a serious, heavy-duty donation right after something like that. And then he gives a speech that kind of defends Trump, attempts to contextualize. This is um, the famous Seriously, not literally. You know, we it, the, the point was like, yeah, Trump says weird stuff all the time, but like actually, when you look closely, his vision is important and and it's and it's powerful. And that was that was a big deal because even the people who were most terrified of him, right? I, many of us were like, well, maybe that's true. Yeah, no, that be no, good it was if that's true. Provocative. It, it turned out, I think, not to be true. Right? I mean, it seems like literally, probably was a way to read Trump. Um, but but in any case. As you said, he it gets him definitely gets him onto the transition team and gets him a pretty important role at least for the first few months in the White House. He's he's given a, a pretty uh, big portfolio, you know, room to suggest people for for FDA for a bunch of sort of these lesser cabinet posts. But but there is a lot of power in those posts, and he kind of blows— stuff that Trump doesn't care about at all. Exactly, Trump doesn't care about it at all, but but could be very 
important to uh, a venture capitalist with bets in biotech and everything else. Yeah, yeah. And you brought up the FDA, but of course, that and that's a big priority for a lot of Silicon Valley guys and investors. You know, they feel like the FDA is sort of limiting innovation, that there would be, you know, if you if you somehow just like let people take whatever drugs they wanted, um, that would that would Right. And that's be, that's an extreme version of that. But the FDA is stifling us. That's a mainstream Silicon Valley and it's, view. I'll say it's become a lot more mainstream over the past mm-hmm. uh, two years. Um, you know, a, Teal's pick, uh, one of Teal's two picks for for FDA was this guy Balaji Srinivasan, who was really out there, very outspoken, very much like a Teal a Teal-like character. Balaji uh, has said all kinds of crazy stuff about the FDA, but he also said, you know, was was really early on coronavirus. You know, there's 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 an argument there to be made. I think he blew up partly because he sort of misjudged the situation. There was there was a little bit of inexperience. Like Trump is never gonna put. Balaji in charge of the FDA. Trump doesn't want to no, – I mean, I don't know. Like, Trump was out there, but he wasn't that out there. That's kind of the formulation that that I got from um, Steve Bannon. In other words, um, you know, he just wasn't ready to be as disruptive as, as Teal is, which is kind of funny and, and, and maybe telling. I also think Teal was maybe playing a different game. I mean, I think Teal was trying to, you know, exert influence in the White House, but I don't think his his end game was, you know, an administration position. I think his end game was kind of what he got, which is to have, you know, his companies continue to be very successful. Uh, you know, Palantir um, has thrived over the past five years. That's that's probably the single biggest chunk of Teal's net worth is in that company. Tell and, me what Palantir is. So Palantir is a, a defense contractor. It, it grew out of PayPal. The original idea was to take some of the security technology, the anti-money laundering technology that PayPal had, and sell it to the U.S. government after 9-11. So if you remember, there was all this you know, anxiety uh, in the U.S. and particularly, you know, in the government and intelligence circles that we had sort of missed uh, warning signs that 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 would have allowed us to stop the the terrorist attacks if we'd only connected the dots, if we'd only seen that there were you know twenty high twenty people and they were all in Florida taking flight lessons or whatever. And so I've, I've probably mangled that a little bit, but but in any case, there was a market there, and it was basically an idea for that market. Data mining and analytics, and we're going to look at all kinds of stuff that a regular human couldn't do using our super sophisticated computers and algorithms and data scientists, and we'll be able to help you uh, discern risk. Yeah, right? exactly. Which is also kind of a mainstream idea-ish now. There are lots of people investing in that. Uh, Palantir doesn't really work for many, many years. Uh, right. There's still an open question about how effective it is. Right. Um, do you think that it would not have been as successful if, if Trump hadn't won? I think, yeah, I, I don't think there's any chance it would be as successful as it is. I mean, the, I, I, and I'll say this, you know, Palantir people, if you talk to them, they will, you know, up and down, you know, say that that's ridiculous. There's no way that um, that the Trump administration or any, you know, it, it, there was any political element to any of this. But I mean, I just think when you look at the way that government contracts are awarded, I mean, we're talking about major, you know, multi-hundred million dollar contracts with the DOD. There's just no way there isn't a political dimension to something like that, and and in any case, it, you know, it 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 went really well, and 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 the and the other the other thing I'll, I'll bring up is that Teal has this meeting in December, shortly after the election, where he brings in all of these kind of heavy hitter CEOs, basically the the biggest tech CEOs. This uh, is the famous meeting where Tim Cook is sitting, everyone there is sitting with a puss on their face, uncomfortably, and and Trump is is holding up Teal's hand. And it's really gross. Just a really beautiful moment of of kind of bro uh, 
you know, whatever. <laughs> just, a, just a great bro moment between Trump and Teal and then all the tech CEOs looking on, you know, sort of half horrified or, or, or trying to kind of smile through it or something. But in any case, basically, it's all the big CEOs and then there are sort of two exceptions. One is Elon Musk, who now actually would be invited to that meeting. Tesla is huge. Its market cap would definitely put it in that in that group, but it wasn't at the time. Um, of course, Elon Musk is the founder of SpaceX, a major defense contractor that make rockets, uh, and Teal owns a big stake. There's a second exception, and that's Palantir, which at the time was a teeny tiny defense contractor. You know, uh, I think it was only you know maybe worth twenty billion dollars. You're talking about companies that are worth you know in the in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And Alex Karp, the CEO, gets in that room, which, I mean, it, ha- it just has to be worth something. Um, but although, who knows? Maybe it was just the, the the brilliance of their software that got them there. Let's talk about Gawker, which which exists again as a title. Um, was a it's it's kind of hard to remember now because it's a while ago. Was was a really big influence in 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 media for probably about a decade. Yeah, Denton created it. Um, and I think most people here are vaguely familiar with the story. Gawker slash Valleywag targeted Teal early on, um, wrote a piece outing him. Yep. Um, wrote other pieces um, denigrating his, his business prowess. And, and Teal then spends, I guess, years and years and years plotting to get his revenge and does. He, he uh, backs a lawsuit by Terry Bollea, also known as Hulk Hogan, um, that eventually bankrupts Gawker. Again, is there an alternate reality where where Nick Denton writes one less bad post, or because he and he and Teal are kind of similarish, weird, Aspergery, libertarian, libertarian weirdo dudes who are smart and successful and and also make people uncomfortable, where they find some common cause or bury a hatchet, and 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 Nick Denton was always willing to settle that case. Is there a version where where that doesn't happen, or is this something where if you cross Peter Teal? and maybe you've done it in your book, uh, he will eventually uh, chase you down and, and, and rub you out. Uh, I mean, I hope not. <laughs> um, I thought for a long time that maybe, especially when before I started sort of like researching this, I thought, why didn't Denton just apologize? I mean, a public, a full-on public apology to Teal. And, and like, why didn't he do that? Maybe if he had done that, that would have made a difference. Um, I'm not so sure that's the case, um, now having having kind of dug into it, I think both talking to people who are involved on the sort of on the teal side of this and also, you know, some of the uh, Gawker people, I think he was pretty determined to, as you said, you know, wipe it out. The heat-seeking missile has been launched and you can't stop it. I also think it's pretty important to say like teal – is proud of this. He's not, this is not like something that he regards as like an embarrassment or, or, you know. He did an interview in the New York Times explaining why he he did it. And, and yes, like he did not. So Forbes broke that story. Uh, Ryan Mack, I believe, broke that story. But Teal was very quick to take credit for it. He did, you know, he went right to the, he went right to Andrew Ross Sorkin and, and, and then, and he's been calling it his, you know, his most proud philanthropic act. Um, By the way, the people in the Valley love it. There's a whole group of people who, who love him for doing that. And I think that, that may have I think that may have been part of the calculus. And 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 the the you know, Teal has spent his entire career choosing, picking these kind of stunts, these like these grand provocations. And I think 
you know, this was one of them. And I, and I don't know that it's a total coincidence that it came. I mean, it must be in some sense a coincidence that it happened, you know, the same month that he yeah. he became a Donald Trump supporter. But on some level, I think it's kind of they're both of a piece. He was attempting and and maybe and maybe still is attempting to kind of step up into this 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 higher plane. If of he's influence. best known for the guy who, who destroyed Gawker, he wouldn't be terribly upset about that. No, I don't think so at all. I think he's, I think, as I said, completely proud of it. And there was an effort, uh, I, I report on this in the book, there was a settlement meeting between Denton and Teal. And Teal's attitude in that meeting, this is after Gawker is gone, was not of the gracious, let's find it, let's find it. Like he's a, already won. Yeah, he had won and it was like, I want to, the, the, the quote is in the book, but basically he wants to to stamp this thing yeah, out. He just shows up to the meeting just to just sort of rub Denton's nose. Exactly. Out. At the time it happened, real shockwaves in, in New York media-ish, because uh, we know lots of people who worked at Gawker and lots of us liked the publication or, and or had problems with it, but we... But, it and it was exceedingly thing. influential. I mean... But we all, the other obvious concern was, oh, this is the playbook. Right. Any rich person, any there's certainly plenty of other billionaires who don't like publications. Um, this, is, this is the roadmap. You fund people to sue them out of existence. Have yet to see it? Do you well, think that's just the particulars of, of Teal and Denton, or do you I, think it's actually happening and we don't know about it? So I, we haven't seen the, like, secret wrestler, you know, wrestler mm-hmm. sex tape lawsuit leading to the destruction of a media company. But I do think the number of pre-publication threats that newsroom councils are getting has gone way up. We've seen Charles Harder bring a number of lawsuits. Um, this was uh, the attorney that—, that uh, Teal that Teal, yeah, yeah, that 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 represented Hogan and and was funded by Teal. You know, he went to work for Melania Trump, and you know, he's basically you know turned this into his kind of thing. And so, I do think that it has had an impact. And there's also just the like chilling impact, the fact that now anytime anyone writes a story, not just about Peter Teal, but by about any billionaire who is even you know borderline seen as litigious, this becomes a huge conversation that reporters are having with, you know, newsroom councils. And I think that was by design as well. And and that is a part of it where no matter what you think about Gawker, even if you feel like, oh, it's good, good work Peter or something, I, I think you have to sort of give pause to that and 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 what what it has done and what it could potentially do, you know, in the United States where we have, you know, a really proud, you know, great proud tradition of a, of a free press. Um, this is definitely pushing in the other direction. I don't want to end the interview on this, but but I am curious. I did not expect to read this much about Charles Johnson in a Peter Thiel story. Uh, and and so this this is a what I always thought of as a marginal character. I mean, David Carr wrote a Times column about him once. Yeah. So um, he had some notoriety and has been sort of around the fringes of the alt-right for a while and um, has popped up more recently as someone connected to, uh, what's the name of the, uh, Clearview? Clearview, yeah. The creepy, uh, ID thing. Why, why is he, why does he figure prominently in a Peter Thiel story? Well, he was, uh, an important, uh, you know, Thiel operative, basically, in Thiel's connections and approach to the alt-right and to, to some extent, sort of the Trump administration and right-wing media. Johnson is kind of a lot like Peter Thiel. I mean, that, that's the other thing that I, I found him found interesting about him is just if you look at the kind of his trajectory, he's he's gotten in all trouble for all saying all kinds of um kicked off Twitter. Kicked off Twitter and you know it's it's kind of similar to the 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 kind of person that Teal tends to gravitate to. It's not all that different from that Stanford review anecdote with Keith Raboy. He I'm a smart guy 
who doesn't fit in and leans into that and wants to provoke. Teal loves these kind of like hyperverbal, super provocative, you know, figures. And I think Johnson appealed to him for that reason. And of course, you know, Clearview, Teal invested in Clearview. Teal is still financially uh, tied up with Johnson's interests. And so, I don't know, I, I think it's pretty interesting. I think it also perhaps speaks to Teal's the extent to which he was an outsider in this world, the fact that Johnson was playing such a big role, uh, you know, that, and, and it also speaks to the fact that Teal was very early on this kind of alt-right movement, which Johnson was, you know, closely associated with. So, so back in 2012, Teal backed Ron Paul. And that is kind of a weird thing. He 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 created this um, super PAC, and it's kind of like what what exactly did did Peter Thiel see in Ron Paul? I think most people at the time thought that the reason he was backing Paul is because he's a libertarian, and Paul is a libertarian. Yeah, but there I, definitely was a techie element to Paul's appeal back then. But I think the reason is that Thiel saw this the the Paul movement kind of for what it was, which is this, which was like a nascent version of the alt right. I mean, there were definitely Paul supporters who were doctrinaire libertarians. But I think a lot of people who supported Paul just wanted to just blow up the system, just wanted to, you know, troll the the mainstream media. And I think that just totally gets continued with with Donald Trump. And 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 that's Teal's initial interest in this world. It's Trump and Trumpism and the alt-right as a sort of bomb that you can throw into the establishment. So to bring this all the way back to the beginning of the interview. So Teal is a rich, successful venture capitalist hedge fund tech guy. There's a lot of those. Um, he had this moment where he destroyed Gawker and supported Trump. Now seems like a really long time ago. We don't know what Trump's going to end up doing, but Gawker doesn't exist. Is and Teal's in his, what, mid-50s? Does he go back to just being a rich guy who has stakes in Palantir and other companies, or do you think he is going to want to be part of do you think that he has the, the, the ideology and, and whatever else that motivates him is going to continue to have him sort of be in our lives and someone we pay attention to? Um, you know, Steve Bannon, uh, the last time I talked to him for the book, uh, he said, you know, Teal's not, you know, Teal isn't going away. He's a, he's more MAGA than he's ever been. I can't remember the exact quote, but it's basically like, you know, he's full MAGA. He's not he's not backing down. And of course, that may be projection on Steve Bannon's part. I think Steve Bannon very much yeah. liked to have Peter Teal as a as somebody's bankrolling his, yeah. his 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 projects. On the other hand, Teal has donated or pledged to donate 20 million bucks so far to two political candidates. Um, there, there's a handful of smaller donations, you know, that have been made, and I, I think a few more will be made between now um, and the 2022 midterm. So that's like a 20x increase over his political engagement mm -hmm. in 2016. These candidates, these two senators that Teal is backing, um, sen sorry, Senate candidates, uh, Vance and Masters. They are very, very closely associated with Peter Thiel. I mean, uh, Masters is the COO of, the, of Thiel Capital, which is family office. He's basically like a chief of staff to Peter yep. Thiel. Still, Vance uh, worked for Thiel at Mithril, which was the, the hillbilly allergy guy. Yeah, yeah, and and he now is uh, Thiel's an investor in his uh, venture capital firm, which also has a Lord of the Rings name. It's called Naria. They've invested together in Rumble, which is like a, a sort of right wing YouTube type thing, a free speech, excuse me, free speech um, video platform. And, you can say right wing. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding around. But anyway, these guys are basically extensions of Teal's worldview. And, you know, it's unclear how well they'll do. Uh, I think well, J.D. Vance is doing terribly, right? Isn't he Isn't he getting beaten by a much more he MAGA? Is, he is in the, Republican? you know, single digits. It's hard to know how how that's going to shake out. And maybe he'll just completely sputter, be like one of these guys like like uh, who's who appeals to elites but not to, you know, regular voters. 
That said, I think the ambition in any case with Thiel is definitely to play a much bigger role politically and, and to be the patron or one of the key patrons to this Trumpist movement, which is, you know— a, I'm going to deploy my billions of dollars for these political ends. Yeah, and, and then I think also, and as he always has, that is associated with his business interest. I mean, he's still making investments. And so I think the goal is to increase his power and continue to use— um, pull these political levers and 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 hopefully reap the rewards. But who knows? I mean, as you said, J.D. Vance is, um, is in single digits. Um, uh, Masters, I think, maybe has maybe slightly better prospects, but not at all clear he'll win the nomination. And so there is a chance that at some point the American public, including the, like, you know, the the, the Trumpist right, you know, has basically had enough of, of this billionaire. But, you know, Teal's very resourceful and, and kind of very used to uh, finding himself in that role. So I'm sure he'll continue to, to you know, find ways to, to make his voice heard. Max Chafkin, I'm glad you wrote this book. Um, I can't believe you have not made this into a movie or has not been sold. I know there's Hollywood people listening, so unless you're afraid of a vindictive billionaire. I don't know why you wouldn't buy the rights to this book. I, I um, appreciate the plug. The rest of you should read it. Uh, you probably won't get sued. Uh, Max, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Max for making time. Very good book. Go read it. Go buy it. Um, and now here's me talking to Joe Posner. <laughs> that guy you hear laughing is Joe Posner. He's my coworker. Um, I call him Vox.com's mad video genius. Welcome, Joe. Oh my God. Thank you for having me, Peter. Uh, when you have a new show on HBO, it's time to have you on the show. Um, you've got a new show. It's on HBO. It's Vox.com production. For, it's called? Level Playing Field. Yeah, this is our first experiment in going on to a whole other platform. We have our show Explained on Netflix, and now we're two episodes in on Level Playing Field on HBO. So I described you as, as Vox.com's uh, video genius. It's Kind of true. Uh, but you're the guy responsible for Vox's, and I, I, I guess this is the company I work for. Um, and yes, I'm, I'm buttering him up and, and my employer up a little bit. But it also happens to be true. Vox.com has had enormous success on video, on the internet. That is Joe's work, Joe and the team that he works with. And you guys were enormously successful on YouTube, nominated for all kinds of awards. Then you started making shows for Netflix, like you just said, and this is an HBO show. And this is about sports. Sports, but much more. Give, give people the, the elevator pitch for the show. Absolutely. Level Playing Field is a four-part series at the intersection of sports and politics and policy. Uh, we're hoping to help people understand important issues that affect everybody in the economy um, through the lens of sports. Uh, so the series um, started with an episode about a program in the 90s called Midnight Basketball. The episode uh, that airs this week is called Misclassified, and it's about the NCAA and how they started calling their core workforce something other than employees, how that relates to the gig economy. Right, so you're, you're talking about college sports, and then you, you get Uber wedged in there, but it makes sense when you watch it. <laughs> it does, it does, uh, in part because of the incredible story of this fascinating guy we met making the series named Kyle Allen, uh, who played for a Division II team uh, a lot of people like to talk about college sports. They say, why can't the athletes get paid? And actually, over the summer, they can get paid now for work as influencers. But the reality, just like only 1% or 2% of these college athletes will ever go pro, I am sure a very small number of them will ever make a dime. Um, the system needs to change for these college athletes. And uh, 
some of them end up losing their scholarship and doing other jobs that have the same problems as the NCAA. I think it is a fundamentally broken system (laughs) and I could go on about it for hours. My short version is I think college sports should be divorced from college. I think if you want to have a team associated with your college, that's great. And you should just treat those players like professionals and you can pay them in cash and give them uh, guaranteed tuition. And by the way, you should put them in schools where they can actually learn because a lot of these schools and the athletes are a mismatch. But you guys only have half an hour, so you don't get to hear my full rant. Well, I think that uh, I hope that this starts a lot of conversations like that. I know Lewis Hyman, author of Temp, who also I think he's been on this podcast. He's in the episode and and he would agree with you. Absolutely. His take is 100 percent. If you want to get a scholarship to Cornell, you know, just make sure you pay attention in math and we'll pay the difference. You know, you're going to graduate here from Cornell debt free. Yeah. Um, and you got two more shows. And so I'll let people watch them as they unveil. But uh, most people here are, who are listening have access to HBO or HBO Max or whatever you want to call the streaming service. I'm curious, you have made videos now, you've made product for YouTube and the internet and Netflix. This is an HBO show. It, it very much if you when you watch it, you go, oh, this seems like a a, a Vox video. There's lots of, of tricks you guys use and style, and I'm, it's very intentional. I had Ezra Klein on this show a couple of years ago when when you guys started making a Netflix show. I said, oh, this is like this seems to me like a Vox explained YouTube video, but longer and with a bigger budget. And he got <laughs> kind of offended. He got offended. But I, but I meant that as a compliment. Like if this is a thing that's successful on the internet and now you've supersized it for TV, how do you think about making, taking something that works on YouTube and porting it over to what some people are going to watch on, as linear TV, other you know, people are going to watch on their phones, like a longer YouTube video. How do you think about that? Well, I mean, we think about it the same way we've approached everything. Um, you said some really nice things about me, but really we were lucky uh, as a video team to have the freedom to make videos for YouTube that were of YouTube. Uh, we, we were all YouTube viewers and, and uh, most of us video creators before we worked at Vox. And we've done the same thing in every new opportunity we get. You know, we want to make some, if it's on Netflix, we want people who are on Netflix to feel like it, it works there. And with HBO, this is also a new experiment for us. We care deeply about explanatory work at Vox, obviously. Most of their documentaries, or almost all of them, are non-narrated, and so is this show. Uh, so that's new for us, uh, and is a fun challenge. I mean, every single thing we start, we try to approach it as like just a fun challenge of getting us to evolve again. Do they give you marching orders like this is HBO, we don't have a we don't have a narrator, so you won't have a narrator either or do you guys take that upon yourself? Cuz they also want it I assume they want it to look and feel like a box product in some way. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like any collaboration, you know, everything is just trying to make the best show we all can together. So that was the decision we all made together. We did have a couple early cuts. We were trying it with a narrator and it, you know, it just worked better um, this way and it felt more right. And I'm really thrilled that it worked out. I mean, I loved, I used to work on documentary features before working at Vox. And I'm so thrilled that we were able to pack as much as we were into 30 minutes because I always find it hard to get my friends, you know, there's a lot, a lot of documentaries out there. And it's really hard to commit 90 minutes of your day to something. And so I'm psyched. We figured out how to both not have a narrator and get deep into these issues enough that, you know, people might want to watch it after dinner and not like, you know, it's not like the middle of the night already. 
I mean, I, I have filmmakers and directors and TV people on all the time and I talk to them. I've almost stopped asking them about whether what they think about someone watching something on a phone or a laptop instead of a TV <laughs> or, or seeing it in a movie theater. I assume you start with the assumption that someone's going to watch it on the phone. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I definitely don't care where people watch. Uh, you know, we really want to make people engage with something that is nutritious, right? Like I am always trying to figure out how can we get people interested in these really important issues? There's so many places you can read about these issues. Obviously like Recode covers the gig economy incredibly well. That's why you had my coworker Ronnie on exactly, the show. Exactly, right? By the way, good um, plug. Like I'm so excited that we're doing a sports series because it might also appeal to a different kind of audience and we might start conversations between people who would otherwise talk to each other. And that's what I'm hoping comes out of this, not that people, you know, lay back and sit in a theater. So the biggest platform, the biggest thing in video the last couple of years is TikTok, <laughs> which is, you know, now gone from a minute to three minutes. Um, I, apparently they're experimenting I, with five minutes now. Oh, there we go. There's breaking news. No, no so, I, just heard, um, I just heard that on the internet. <laughs> just, well, that's, that's, that's what the show is about, just saying things that could or could not be true. Um, have you thought about how you, I know there is, I know Vox now is, is playing around with a presence on, on TikTok. Have you thought about how you port your style and aesthetic to TikTok eventually? I think that that is a question that my colleagues who are much more genius at video than I am, Joss Fong and Cleo Abram are answering yep. every day on the platform. So you're saying you're too good for TikTok? No, I'm not too good. I'm too dumb for TikTok and they're incredible. So yeah, I mean, Vox is on TikTok. Uh, if you're interested in how we're uh, experimenting on it, I mean, you know, my teammates are on there every day and Cleo's TikTok is just so engaging and amazing. I think that she's kind of charting a course for all of us in terms of TikTok. And while we're, we're having sort of, um, while, we're, while we're buttering ourselves up and engaging inward by having someone from, from Vox on a, on a Vox podcast, let me just end here. Everyone piled on the pivot to video move from a few years ago, and we've now assigned all sorts of ills to it. It seems more straightforward, I think, than people sort of get. Like, it was a thing that people thought would be more remunerative than it was. It hasn't quite worked. But... It seems like Vox is a counterexample where Vox leaned into video early on. It has been successful. It's been successful on various platforms. It makes money for the company. What do people miss when they derisively talk about the pivot to video? Why has it worked for you slash Vox? I mean, I think that the key thing that people miss in the pivot to video conversation is the word pivot. Like, Learning something new for anybody is really hard and is really, uh, you just have to be lucky, right, to break through uh, often. We were really lucky that, I mean, I have always worked in video, um, and I feel really lucky that Vox gave me a chance, right, that I wasn't coming from, you know, cable news or as like, you know, an economics writer. We were always video makers, uh, working with the newsroom and around the newsroom and figuring out what was us on this other platform. Um, so we never really pivoted. You know, I made the launch video for Vox in like <laughs> a few days as we were mm -hmm. launching. There's no pivot. Um, and I think that, you know, a point that I think that is really right about pivot video that gets made is that that phrase is often used by management who see diminishing returns on the tech side and are looking to say anything besides 
you know, we're laying people off. Um, mm-hmm. My former boss, I, I made a series for Newsweek uh, back when it was part of the Daily Beast with Susie Benacarum, and she wrote this great piece about the pivot to video that is talking about that. Um, and I think she was totally right on. The other thing to make your pivot to video work is, is to hire Joe Poser. <laughs> so if you want to pivot to video success, you'll hire Joe, but oh don't my God. hire Joe. Cut. He's keeping the company running. He's great. Cut this out of the podcast. Him. You're insane. Done. Go watch, go watch Joe's HBO show. Do not hire him. Thank you, Joe Posner. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Thanks again to Joe. Thanks again to Max. Thanks again to our sponsors who let us bring you this show for free. Some of you have told me you might pay for this show. God bless. You don't have to yet. So far, it's still free. Thanks again to you guys for listening. This is Recode Media. We are back next week. <laughs>